This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Sari Nasebe. He's president of Al-Quds University in Jerusalem. I spoke with him on March 15, 2011, at his office in East Jerusalem. This interview is included in our show, The Evolution of Change. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Good to see you. Mm-hmm. That's right, and I can't move now. <laughs> yeah. You know, we have a, a common friend in Paul Eli at uh, your editor. Oh, yes, um, Paul Eli. And I wrote to him after I finished reading the book, and uh, I said, what, a, what yeah. a beautiful, no, no. <laughs> I said, what a beautiful, important book. I'm uh, so glad you brought this out. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see the new book that came out? That's the, well, Once Upon a Country. No, no, no. no. Uh, What's the Palestinian State worth? Which is oh, you know, I did. I, I did. I did see that. Paul didn't do that one. No, 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 not Paul. Yeah, yeah. An equally charming person. Uh, the editor is Sharmila Sen at Harvard. Mm-hmm. But the uh, person who worked with me very closely is uh, uh, Camille Smith. Camille okay. Smith. Okay. She works as an editor. Mm-hmm. And I, I also interviewed Rabbi David Hartman, uh, ah. who mentioned you, and many, I noticed that you ago, mentioned yes, him yes, also yes. in your book. So. We met many years ago uh-huh. and had a, a joint sort of program yeah. in the American colony, I remember. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, he mentioned some of your conversations. Yeah, it's a long yeah. time since I've seen him. Yeah. So uh, what do you need, Chris? Do you need sound check? Yeah, just a little more... Uh, um... I, as so, I say, uh, I don't want you to say anything profound, and so I'm afraid. So, ha- tell okay, me, did, so what did you have for lunch? What did I have for lunch? Yes. Um, well, some profound things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we right. had, uh, well, it was a mixture of lunch and breakfast, actually. You know, we had the normal stuff that people eat around here. Hummus and mm-hmm. food and, and tomatoes and eggs and uh, za'atar. You know za'atar? Za'atar? The soup of herb that you... Oh, oh yes, 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 yeah. with the sesame seeds. With the sesame yes. seeds, tiny sesame seeds. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you use, um, to, you use kayak to dip everything. Oh, I like that to idea. To eat. Kayak is, is like bread, or it's, it's an alternative form of bread. Yes, yes. And people say, although this is very profound, actually, to be making such a statement, that the kayak <laughs> that's produced, cooked in Jerusalem, yeah. is actually the best kayak you can find in the Arab world. But this may have been true in the past. It's no longer true. It's no, no longer it's true. just a fiction of people's minds and okay. imagination. <laughs> okay. All right. Can I just? All right. You may begin to be profound now. <laughs> um, yes. Take some water. I will too. Hmm. Well, I'm really thrilled to be here and honored to be here. Well, and it's great. Uh, Thank you. We have a program. Do you know anything from, about our program? No, I'm just, just reading. You know, I don't listen to the yeah, right. programs well, in America. This is pu- U.S. public radio, right? It's, yeah. it's our equivalent of the BBC. It's not yeah. the BBC, but it's the closest thing oh, we have. Oh, it's not. Oh. Not quite. Not doesn't quite. have that history <laughs> and that reach. Um, but uh, our focus of this program is religion, yeah. meaning, yeah. ethics, yeah. and ideas, I think, uh, and yeah. questions. Yeah. I, I, uh, 
when we talk about religion so much, we talk about yeah. competing answers yeah. and not the great searching questions. Yeah. So, so that's, and I, you know, philosophers are very much at home with our program mm. too. Yeah. So, um, and I wanted to start out a little bit with, you know, who you are, which is fascinating. Your story is fascinating. Um, you know, the fact that you are from the oldest, what, tell, make sure that, I want to make sure this is our oldest recognized family in Jerusalem, dating back 1,400 years. Is that? Well, that's the myth. That's um, the myth, yeah. Um, right. it's, a, it's a myth that the family enjoys right. spreading around. <laughs> I mean, I was also fascinated, and I'm pretty sure I read this in your book, that, that the Nuseba family grew from a female tribal leader, or from a woman, that's right? right? Who was in, among yeah. Muhammad's earliest followers? Is that's that right. right. Uh, she was one of the companions, actually, not mm -hmm. just a follower. So mm -hmm. when uh, Muhammad made the first um, journey from Mecca to Medina, which is the Hijra, which marks the beginning of the era for the Muslims, as you know, uh, he made this trip, you know, the Mecca people drove him out right. from Mecca, and he went to Medina. There, there in Medina, he was... He was met by a few uh, leaders of tribes mm -hmm. in Medina. And among them, I think there were four or three women or two women. And one of them was Nusayba, who belonged to one of the major tribes in Medina, who had originally come from the Yemen. Mm -mm, really? Uh, so it's a long story. And yeah. uh, she later uh, fought with him in the various battles and lost her kids, apparently, mm. according to the story we like to market and uh, I think even you know defended her uh, defended him with her body mm. on various occasions you know he was going to be and as a result lost uh, her own some of her own limbs and it is said that he asked her you know just tell me what you want uh, because you have a free kind of open door for anything that you may wish for ask for mm -hmm. from God and she just asked that uh, she and her uh, children and her, uh, you know, people after her would all just have a reasonably decent life, which I'm glad to report we are having. <laughs> you <Even>. are evidence <laughs> that that may come true. That's right. Uh -huh. But her, her, her two children, her two boys were killed in that battle, in, in those battles, one of the major battles. And then a cousin of hers uh, by the name of Abada. Uh, who was another of the Prophet's companions, came to Jerusalem with the earliest Muslim entry into Jerusalem and was appointed the first uh, high judge, what was called the high judge at the mm. time of Jerusalem. And I think it is from there that we as a family went on dealing from that point on with the key to the Holy Sepulchre. Right, became the holders of the, the Muslim that, family. Yes. With, that, that uh, as you know, Bishop Sophronius at the time handed over the keys of Jerusalem to the, uh, to the Palestinian, to the Muslim army, or the Muslim uh, caliph, uh, supposedly Caliph Omar, who came to Jerusalem with his friends, companions. And uh, my suspicion is that uh, this symbolic key, which was the key of the holy sites of the Christians, the primarily holy sites. I think it was, yes, because in the books, in the literature, it says, you know, the key to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. But as you know, Jerusalem has many doors. Right, right. So it can't have been, you know, he couldn't have handed them seven keys. And the Church keys. of the Holy Sepulchre is really that Christian center of Jerusalem. And it's the that? center of life and the world as far as Christianity is concerned. And therefore, 
you know, uh, a lot of uh, world uh, ideology is concerned, I mm -hmm. suppose. And, you know, if you go to, into the Holy Sepulchre, people will, some of them will point to you to the exact point where the center of the earth is, right. just as you go in. So uh, clearly it was a, it's a very important location. And I imagine that the judge was given the key to look after the, to look after the uh, church, this holiest of sites, uh, to protect it. And I imagine this is how we came to, be, uh, to have anything to do with the, with the key to the sepulchre. Although, of course, there are many other stories. And one mm. of the other stories is that the various Christian churches often fight with each other and they had to go outside for a... And that they needed... And they needed a, a neutral, neutral. A neutral, and so they came to us. But today, I must add that uh, today, for the last four, five hundred years, the responsibility has been shared between two families. Okay. And they're both Muslim. Mm -hmm. One, the, the, the job of opening and closing the gate or door, and the other, the job of actually keeping the, the, the key at... Uh, safe and safe, uh, safely mm -hmm. during the night. I, I think for an American, what's so astonishing about that story is not that it happened, but that the tradition has been maintained for century yes. after century. Yes, it is actually even astonishing here because... Uh, but you must realize that the, the Holy Sepulchre is really a maze of, of uh, traditions mm -hmm. that have been maintained, guarded, sometimes to the point of uh, friction between various people. Between the Christians? Between the Christians mostly. Although, mm -hmm. of course, as you also probably know, uh, many years ago, there was one Muslim caliph uh, from Egypt who went mad and ordered the burning of the sepulcher. No. And that was one of the reasons, in fact, back in the Middle Ages, which prompted, it seems, or it says, sounds, I mean, it may, may be this that prompted uh, the beginning of the Crusades. Hmm. I didn't know that. Well, it's a, it's a story. It's a, he was a, he's a caliph from, from the Fatimid, uh, belonging to the Fatimid era. And it is said that he ordered the burning, and it is true that uh, the, the sepulchre was burnt. Hmm. Uh, it was pulled down, and uh, then the crusades took place, as you know, and then Salah hmm. came hmm. and regained it, and regained the traditions. And uh, the Ottomans, you know, maintained what is called the status quo in the church, and hmm. indeed in the entire Holy Land. Mm -hmm. The status quo being the balance that exists, the traditional balance that exists between the various churches mm -hmm. in the various locations. So who has control of what, you know, which church has which particular bit, which uh, chair right. uh, a priest can sit on, uh, which door can be opened by whom, at what right. time right. of the day or night. When, when the different groups worship. When the different groups worship. So, so tell me also about um, your... Your Muslim identity, that would, how, how uh, what, what was the Muslim sensibility that you grew up in, in your family? Um, le let me uh, tell you, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit complicated, special maybe, is, 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 the, is the word to, to use here, because on my, my father's a very open-minded uh, uh, person, you know, liberal, educated in the West and so on. My mother, on the other hand, uh, comes from a very conservative Muslim family, and indeed, uh, some of her ancestors are supposed to have been Sufi. Uh, was it her father? Not, not her father. Her father was very religious. He was mm -hmm. deeply religious. But he was also a businessman, a father, a kind of uh, a farmer, uh, who at one stage was also a political activist. He was 
picked up by the British, and and you know he you know he was he was he was expelled from the country by them mm-hmm. uh, to a place I'd like to be expelled to today, which is Seychelles. Oh, really? become, <laughs> but at the time, it was a horrible place apparently to be expelled mm-hmm. to, and uh, there were about four or five of them who were the leaders of the Palestinian resistance to what was happening, and. Uh, he was also religious, but he comes himself from a family. I mean, his, his ancestors are, uh, are religious. And uh, indeed, today he is buried next to a religious Sufi master mm. in Ramle, mm. uh, where he in fact died, uh, where, where he passed away. But uh, so she, she is more religious. I mean, she comes from a more religious kind of background. And um, so different from my father. And although my father was also religious, but he wasn't a kind of mystical uh, religious person. My mother was more inclined to be mystical mm-hmm. uh, religious person. And so I grew up in between them. And uh, both of them had uh, great uh, admiration and taught us to have great admiration for you know, the fact that uh, we were, as a family, uh, custodians or key holders of the, of the Holy Sepulchre. And um, we grew up to, in fact, respect uh, the holidays, religious holidays of, the, of Christians. Uh, we didn't actually, I didn't know the difference between the various Christian groups. I just thought at the time when I was young that uh, there were just, you know, beautiful ways to be different. Uh, and every time there was some kind of occasion and festivity for one group or another, uh, we just went and as kids and joined. Mm in it thinking, you know, Christians have a nicer time than Muslims because there's so many festivals, right. <laughs> you know, being held by so many different uh, colored yeah. groups. And, and I think that's how it was. Uh, we didn't notice any friction as children between the various uh, groups. It, was there less friction or you just weren't aware of it? I don't think there was uh, really uh, as such. I mean, every now and again, maybe you'd, you'd hear about some kind of quarrel that broke out. But as we grew, as I grew up, in the context of the sepulchre and the festivities and so on, I never really heard of any frictions mm-hmm. between the various religious groups. And on the contrary, I didn't even make any, you know, the distinctions weren't really there in my mind. You know, the Copts and the uh, Armenians and the, I don't know, Orthodox Greeks, and the Greeks. Yeah, and yeah. It wasn't there. And so we just uh, grew up actually celebrating with the, with the various Christian groups. There's something quite beautiful you wrote about your mother. Um, you said, whatever the source... The Islam she, she inculcated in us was a religion with minimal miracles and a cornucopia of rock-solid humanistic values. For her, Islam taught dignity, honesty, self-worth, simplicity, kindness, and of course, love, endless love. Endless love. Mm-hmm. Well, I think she's down to earth as a person, as a human being, and, and that's where her belief in the mystical aspect of, of religion, I suppose, uh, connects. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my father was more of an intellectual. And he, his, he was very passionate about pan, pan-Arabic causes. He wasn't right? passionate. He a, I wouldn't say he was very passionate, but, but he was more of, a, of an intellectual. I mean, mm-hmm. he, was, he looked at life in intellectual, uh, with intellectual uh, spectacles. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and analyzed what was happening in those terms. Certainly, he had a great deal of pride in his Arabness, I think. You know, and uh, in a way that didn't, in fact, reveal itself uh, uh, to anyone who knew him at first. You mm. know, people didn't uh, uh, realize 
that he was such a proud Arab. But he was very proud as an Arab. He was proud of his Arabness. He was, he knew a lot of poetry, pre-Islamic poetry. He, mm. um, and, you know, he had a lot of uh, those talents, very clever, visionary, imaginative, uh, and so on, but he did not, for instance, write poetry, which is what my mother mother did. Well, she came from <laughs> a long line of Sufis, right? That's yeah. right. So my mother was into that. Uh, a mm. lot of, as I say, love. And she exhibited and showed this love. My father was a bit uh, differential. He was mm-hmm. sort of distant. I think the first child he ever held in his arms was my own child, but not his own children. Yeah. Uh, and that was when he was already uh, in his 60s or 70s. Um, so yes, she's, she was totally different and most of all, first of all, she was very much of a human being. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me from, from your writing that your father's pan-Arabic vision also was very deeply humanistic and pluralistic, right? That he saw it as drawing out the, not just the best of Muslim virtues, yes. but also of those of the other traditions. Would That's that be right. right. He, his Arabness was, uh, as you say, pluralistic. He, uh, he did not see it as in any way conflicting with anything else. He saw the Arab world in uh, terms of what it used to be, what he imagined maybe that it used to be in the past, namely as a big cauldron, you know, having everyone in it mm-hmm. uh, mixed up and uh, everyone fulfilling themselves in it, uh, culturally, linguistically, in every other way. And I think if he prided himself on, on his Arabness, it was insofar as he saw Arabness as something that contained all of this, mm-hmm. that enabled uh, uh, this sort of mixture. Which all no of those elements of humanity of and humanity. tradition that had gone into all the Arabic cultures? In theory. I mean, you know, when one thinks of Arab culture in, in its heyday, one thinks of the fact that... Uh, it is a culture that, uh, in, you know, admitted of, of pluralism, a plurality of ideas, uh, and so on. But it's not always been idyllic, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and very often, we must always recall or remember that it, it's, it's had uh, times and periods, and especially now, for instance, where this is not at all true of it. But whenever you find that an Arab is or does feel proud of, of that culture, it is on account of that particular era, right. real or imagined which, in fact, uh, held all this uh, variety, in which you know, people who would be religious as well as people who would, not, would be anti-religious would be tolerated. Uh, people who were you know, Armenian or Kazakh or whatever would be very much part of it, uh, in which Jews, for instance, constituted right. a major component of it. Uh, and uh, you know, right up to, I think, even 67, my father still held hope, held out hope for uh, bringing this back again, this kind of uh, open vision of an open Arab society in which Jews and others would be very much part of, of, a, of the world that he imagined the Arab world really in its true nature reflected. Mm-hmm. And you know, your account of how you experienced 1967 is quite different from, I don't know, the the, the telling that I think comes down. I mean, you, you describe um, how you had been, you, you were on the West Bank, where you'd been part of the West Bank, right? You grew up in land yes, grew, which, was Jord- in- which was controlled by Jordan. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you were Israeli, and this didn't feel wrong to you. And you I mean, you describe going into what had been no man's land. There, there's almost a, there's a new freedom 
in your telling of that personal well, well, experience? Uh, I, I was never Israeli, I, and I'm not Israeli. Right, you're yet, not Israeli. But, 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 but anyway. Right, sorry, but, so that's a, that's a like, forgive me. But, no, no, but, no, but no, land no. that was, had been Jordan and but, now but is you're Israel. Right. I mean, what, what happened was this, that I grew up, our house was right on the edge of no man's land. Okay. And uh, right across, you know, on the, at the end of the garden, we had something called Mandelbaum Gate. And Mandelbaum Gate was a gate through which uh, either visitors, diplomats, or sometimes on occasion, uh, Christians would be allowed to pass from Israel to Jordan, okay. especially during uh, religious occasions. Now, uh, at, at that, in that kind of situation, I would look across towards the west, and uh, right there in front of me, I saw the edge of what was Israel. And the edge of what was Israel at the time was what is now known as Me'asharim, or the religious, Israeli, Israeli Jewish religious quarter. And it's a quarter which is inhabited by people who wear religious clothes, you know, the black uh, costumes. And therefore, as I grew up, uh, and I would stand at the end of the garden and look across at Israel, what I would see, and the image that was depicted in my mind was that the Israeli was that person, the black person mm. uh, living in that quarter. And I could see them across the no man's land, which was totally empty, and I'd see them also looking at me as I grew up. But there was this piece of land between us. And in the middle, there was an old building that had been destroyed in the war, in the 48 war. Apparently, it was a court, a hmm. courthouse. But it had been destroyed, and it was left destroyed for the 20 years through which or during which I was growing up. Now, this was the site I had from the garden looking at Israel. And when I went inside the house to listen to uh, what my father was talking about, what my mother was talking about, and you know, you can bet that all their talk was about the war and Israel and how it was before 1948 and 49, and you know all about the life that they had right. on the other side, within you know behind that line which I could see outside. There, I imagined the paradise, because this is the story that was you know conveyed to us that it was paradise, you know, uh, orange groves, beautiful houses. Mm -hmm. uh, beautiful life, and so paradise was there, but what I could see was the edge of those evil people that had stolen it, stolen paradise, and stolen the moment of paradise from my parents. And it was a, a sort of a contradiction that, I, that was there in my mind between the, the, uh, the surface and the, and the inside. And so in 1967, now, I wasn't here, I was abroad, and I asked to come back, and I did come back, and it was you strange. You were in Cambridge, I was, I was in, Yeah, I was in England. Mm -hmm. I, I still hadn't yet got into Oxford, but I did later, but it was a time when I was still at high school. And then right. I took a plane and came back, and it was the first time for me to come into the country sort of, you know, in, on, an, on an Israeli airplane and coming due east, so to speak, and landing in Lud Airport, which, you know, was the paradise and on land which I assumed and uh, was told was, you know, belonged to me by, by right, you know. I, mm -hmm. mean, I don't mean to me as a, as a Palestinian, but even to me as, as, a, as a person who has inherited bits of property in that mm -hmm. area as well. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a personal thing as well. So it was for me a very peculiar kind of um, experience. And then driving back 
into Jerusalem for the first time, driving back, due, going due east, which is very strange, and then coming finally to our house, which was at the edge. Now, you know, the following day after I arrived, or two days later, I went back again to the garden and again looked across at the other side and then decided to do what I had always been dreaming of doing, which was to just make a crossing, to cross that distance uh, by foot. And so I jumped over, you know, to no man's land and I started walking, you know, step by step. And the first thing I did was to go to the uh, old building and uh, a, a vineyard, a, grape, a grapevine that was growing there. I'd always seen it there. And uh, the grapes weren't good because, you know, nobody had looked after them. And it, anyway, it wasn't their season. But, you know, it was nice actually being able to touch it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I took various steps, several steps, and then I'd stop and then look back. And then I'd try to imagine. I, I just wanted to see what I looked like <laughs> from the other side. Yeah. And, you know, I went on with this journey until I got to the other side, to the street that I always saw, where the Jews that I always saw, the religious Jews, uh, would stand looking at us and, and sort of pointing at us about 100 meters away or 150 meters away. And I tried just to put myself in their shoes and try to imagine what we must have looked like and what I, as a little kid or child, must have seemed like to them. And, I, you know, to me it was a very important journey this, this crossing of no man's land. Mm -hmm. And I used it in the book, but I use it also uh, very often to explain the, um, this journey that uh, I feel that we all need to cross. I mean, okay, not all of us, meaning Palestinians or Israelis, but all of us in general. The journey that one always has to cross from being oneself to being the other and to try and see oneself through the eyes of the other in order to uh, bridge the distance between, between people. I mean, I think this is a journey that has had a, a major impact on me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've been here uh, four or five days, and uh, we, did a, we did a couple of programs a few years ago, which we called Two Narratives. Mm -hmm. We had Palestinian and Israeli voices, and I think as soon as we'd been here about two days, we realized that there's so many more than two narratives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not just that there are... There are multiple Israeli mm. narratives, multiple Palestinian narratives, multiple Christian, Jewish, and Muslim mm. narratives. And then I think, you know, then there are the personal narratives. And, mm. and I think that what I also got out of your writing, out of your family's history, is this uh, in all those layers, there's also a layer of legend. Mm. Um, there's the imagined, which, which also affects the reality. And I don't know, I just... Much, much of, of, of reality maybe is imagined. Uh, I mean, when you speak about uh, the narratives that you speak about and the fact that there's so many of them, uh, you're basically saying, I think, that uh, reality is very complex. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not just one thing. And uh, it is constituted by the different ways that it is seen or perceived or experienced. And different people see and, and perceive and experience it in different ways. And I think one has always to be aware of that. So there's no one thing which is out there, which is reality, and another thing which is the subject, us looking at reality. Mm -hmm. But here, each of the narratives, or many of them, have such a weight of, of history and also of trauma behind them. Right? So 
Yes, and some of it you're saying is legend, but uh, I think even the history and the trauma and the legend uh, are all mixed up. Mm -hmm. And um, not to belittle the trauma, but I think that uh, the pain that people uh, remember or recall, uh, very much of it was also slowly constructed, maybe created, and uh, maybe made to look worse than it, it was or is. And insofar as it is made to be worse than it is, it is actually worse. It mm -hmm. becomes worse. It's experienced as worse. It's experienced as worse, even in retrospect. And so, I'm, you know, I'd say that things sort of fade into one another. I, I'm not sure that I would separate or distinguish between the uh, human experience and the, and the object experienced. Mm -hmm. I, I think they were both sort of mixed up with each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's something you wrote about Israelis uh, and Palestinians, um, or Jews and Arabs. You said, in two strangers, each driven by fear and terror, totally unaware of the condition of the other, the, Jews see, the Jew seeks space to continue living, mm. which the Arab defends, while the Arab defends his space to the death. And that's one way of... Well, that's, that's a narrative. I mean, that's, that's two narratives. Yeah. So when, when that particular image was invoked, I also invoked the image of the, in, in the same uh, mm -hmm. uh, passage or page, I think, the uh, Jew, the, what I call the jumping Jew, sort of jumping from the airplane, uh, running away from the Holocaust, and, uh, you know, parachuting down, so to speak, with a... With a oh, yes, tell with a, with a, with a <laughs> holding a, a gun in his hand, a machine gun, because, you know, he's scared. And he's just jumped out of the uh, fire, so to speak. And he wants to uh, search for a space uh, or for uh, salvation, for uh, uh, defending himself. And uh, then, you know, I imagine my grandfather, I mean, it's an imaginative, imaginary kind of grandfather there, as a farmer, because he wasn't, yeah, he was a wasn't farmer. This, but didn't you pr present this scenario in a conversation with your father or your grandfather? My mother. Your mother, all right. Yes. So, uh, well, I asked her, I asked her, you know, what would you have said if instead of this kind of scenario, as, it, as, as I've just portrayed it, where there is this jumping, you know, parachuting Jew with a machine gun in his hand, uh, who suddenly uh, alerts the, the grand, my grandfather is a farmer. Mm -hmm. And he's holding a plow in his hand, and he hears this voice, and he looks up, and he sees this thing coming down on him, and he's never seen an aeroplane in his life. Never mind a parachute, uh, you know, or forget about a machine gun and things, and he's scared, and he, you know, pulls up the plow to defend himself. Mm -hmm. And this guy who's parachuting down is himself scared, mm -hmm. and he sees this, you know, Arab person also with a plow raised, and he is frightened. And it's a kind of combined fear. Uh, and it's fear that neither side understands or appreciates. Because that, you know, when people are afraid, they're, they're too afraid for themselves right. to be aware or conscious of the fear that they cause in others. And uh, it's in a sense, I said, this fear this, that seems to be constantly simmering and, and feeding the conflict that continues between Israel and Palestine. So I went to my mother and asked her, what if, you know, instead of this kind of situation, you know, a rabbi, a very wise old rabbi, came along and knocked on, on your father's door and asked, you know, and told him of this impending, the signs of an impending Holocaust. 
uh, of anti-Semitism and therefore of an impending Holocaust and the need therefore that Jews have in Europe to find a safe home and that they decided that this being a, 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 an ancestral historical home would you know, suit them and you know, realizing that there are Arabs there, could they share it with them? Could the Arabs here actually open the door mm-hmm. for them? What would your father have said? And her immediate answer was, you know, don't be, uh, who do you think we are? You know, of course you would have said, you're most welcome. And he, I mean, she spoke as a kind of, in a very hospitable And also your mother way. is someone who had a great deal of resentment towards... Ex- extreme resentment. Yes. I mean, she's, she's very passionate about this because her, her childhood was lost. Her father, you know, was expelled. He finally died when he was young. Their property was burnt by the British. Mm-hmm. Her husband, my father, uh, lost a leg in the war. Uh, she lost him, actually, in a sense, also because all his life he was involved in politics. So she's very resentful of the, of the conflict in general, mm-hmm. but of the Israelis having caused it mm-hmm. in particular. So, uh, but at the same time, you know, she is a humanist and uh, very open-minded. And, um, you know, when, when I, I, I put to her that particular scenario, this was her immediate uh, response, very spontaneous, which confirmed to me what I always knew about a person of her, with her qualities, that they would be uh, above all uh, uh, human beings in the way that they looked at, at, at themselves and at others, in spite of the pain, they, or perhaps because of the pain, even because of the pain mm-hmm. people go through. And pain is different from fear. I mean, if you are just in pain, you can also somehow sympathize with other people's pain. Fear is different, I think. So I want to ask you, um, uh, I mean, you have this vast history. You have been for a time the head of the PLO in Jerusalem for a few years. Well, for one year, one year or a year and a half, I filled in a post as a PLO person. But uh, yes, I was involved with uh, I mean, Fatah be- and PLO mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. So here's a large question I want to ask you. Um, you know, what, 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 what Palestinian stories are not being told? What qualities of, um, of the Palestinian people um, get lost in the headlines that make their way out of this part of the world? The gentleness of Palestinians, the, 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 the kindness and, and gentleness of, of, uh, of uh, pastoral Palestinian life. Mm which is actually getting lost not only in stories and headlines, but in reality. I mean, I think that uh, even during the past 30 years that I've been here working, I mean, you know, I came back to start working. And right at the beginning when I came back, I could still sense the, what I call just now the pastoral kindness and openness of Palestinian, uh, of the Palestinian character. And I think over time, over these 30 years, this has totally disappeared. And um, you know, what I now see around me is, uh, is a quality, a pal- I, you know, that I, I do not see that the Palestinian is, is, uh, has, has qualities that uh, somehow differentiate uh, him or her from being an Israeli or uh, an Egyptian or anything mm. else before. I used to somehow have the sense or feeling that we were different, mm-hmm. that we were kinder, more hospitable, gentler, um, tolerant, much more tolerant, uh, pluralistic by nature. I think we are far more pluralistic. I mean, to go back to my own upbringing and the openness of my being both a Muslim and, and, and having 
Christianity right in the middle of my own house, mm -hmm. in, in, at more than, than one level. Uh, my having been brought up in a, 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 a Christian school, a missionary school, that my parents, who are Muslims, very Muslim, you know, would send me to, uh, made, you know, was, was, was a reflection of a kind of openness of society that does no longer exist, I'm, I'm afraid. And has that, do you feel, has that been beaten out of people by the conflict, by the By the conflict, the conditions. Uh, yes, by the conditions of conflict, by um, the, the continuity, the, the, uh, the challenge, the, the challenges they've, they've had to put up with, uh, you know, political, economic, uh, social, demographic, uh, uh, everything has changed, transformed, revolutionized in their lives uh, in, in, in ways, some of them positive, but, but on the whole, making them lose that uh, quality, you know, that I associate always with, uh, uh, you know, with olive trees and solidarity and uh, countryside solidarity and, uh, and nice uh, gatherings and evening gatherings people used to have where people would tell stories, you know, you know the old would tell the young, Mm -hmm. stories, you know, that came from 100 and 200 and 300 years ago. This was very much part of a, of a peaceful culture we had that I grew up with, I was aware, aware of, that has now totally disappeared and, you know, has become replaced by politics, Hamas, right. uh, Fatah, PLO, Israel, you know, Netanyahu. So Arafat. where do you look um, at that and through that? I mean, where, where does your hope lie now? Or how do you, how do you try to imagine... Uh, Restoration of that, or healing, or a new, a new reality. I think healing is important. Uh, I'm not sure how how long it'll take. I still feel that uh, hope. I still not feel. I I I, I have a gut sort of uh, faith in uh, the fact that uh, things will somehow righten themselves. Will 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 uh, eventually um, come back together. I'm I'm not sure that we will be able to replicate what we had. But I think that with awareness, alertness to what we lost, to the good things that we lost and the bad things that we've acquired, and the ability to distinguish between the good and the bad, eventually we'll be able to create a new future with better, you know, with, with, with more things that are good. What Not would, necessarily the same. What would, what would bring that about? I mean, what, what conditions would need to be in place for that to happen? Well, I mean, we'd have to somehow, the, the politics, I, I think we'd have to find a way to resolve the politics. And, um, you know, resolving the politics is something that's not impossible. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that's happening anyway. Uh, it's not necessarily happening in, in the way that people assume it is happening. Uh, it's not happening in the sense of, uh, you know, reading the headlines that uh, there's a solution and it's been signed by the two parties, but it's happening, it seems to me, it's unfolding slowly in the sense that people on both sides are more and more uh, aware of the fact that living in conflict is, is intolerable and that, you know, there is a way to find, there is a way that can be found uh, which, uh, which, which, which would allow the two sides to, to live together. Now, what way is not clear in my mind. Uh, mm -hmm. For some time it was two states. Perhaps in the future it could be a federation of regions, of city-states, uh, of, of, of entire... Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how it will look, but I think in general people are, are slowly uh, maturing, if you like, hmm. uh, 
to the need to put life and the values of life as human beings above the, uh, not in, in place of, but above perhaps the, the, the more uh, limiting uh, aspects of, of self-identity and, and identification of themselves as being Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Arab or you know, from this town or from that and so on and so forth. So, I mean, one thing you're saying, let's say to Americans, is don't just, the only barometer of whether change is possible or change is happening is not whether there's an active peace process or not, right? Or as you say, whether agreements, new agreements have been signed. But I mean, what do you, what do you think of? What, what comes to your mind and your imagination when you talk about people maturing? I mean, are there, are there examples of individuals or communities or initiatives that, that are just bubbling along in civil society? Yes, I mean, look, I mean, there's been a, look, there's, uh, in, in general, if you, if you sort of compare between the attitudes of Israelis and Palestinians towards each other, 50 years ago, say, and today, uh, you'll find, you know, we've gone through a sea change. Now, it's not been uh, perceptible on a day-by-day basis, but if you make the comparison between those two periods, you realize that we've covered a long, long, long distance. And uh, if you ask people on the whole today, for instance, about a two-state solution, I think even my mother would tell you, you know, I'm happy with a two-state solution, but it would have to be one to which also the other side would agree to. This is my mother's condition. And I think it's the condition that's probably put by most Israelis and most Palestinians. You know, they're, they're happy to come to a solution on condition that the other side is also willing to come to that particular solution. Right. And I think this, this, this attitude is, is new. I mean, it's, it's, it's open. It's, it's sort of basically saying we are prepared to, to live at peace. We, we do not wish to go continue living at war. And that's, I think, what's most important. Now, um, this is the general uh, uh, umbrella, the, the general address. Uh, then you look underneath and you'll see that uh, you know, people behave as ordinary individuals in many walks of life. And uh, especially, you know, even, even between 67 and, uh, and 87, those 20 years, initial 20 years of occupation, uh, have been actually 20 years in which or during which a lot of Arabs, Palestinians, have become, came, you know, accustomed to Israelis and in which also the Israelis came to be uh, aware of and accustomed to living with Arabs. Uh, you know, villages, towns in the West Bank were or would have been filled with Israeli shoppers, say, on Saturdays mm-hmm. and Fridays and so on. And uh, Israel itself was filled with people working from Gaza and the West Bank. It was totally different from today what things are like. Right, and it, because I, th- I think it, it feels today, like that's being rolled back, back but a bit. It's, go- it's gone back, but it's gone back on the surface because of the... Uh, because of the failure of this particular peace effort, which we, which everybody tried to put together, so things. Are you talking about, about Oslo or since Oslo? Oslo, mm-hmm. Oslo. And I then mean, you the know, second intifada. Yes, mm-hmm. I mean, this whole thing of Oslo, or Madrid, if you like, uh, leading to Oslo, uh, and and opening up the, the the hope that you know this is it, and then people discovering on both sides, no, 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 it is not it. Right. Okay, so people have decided this is not it, and they're angry and frustrated, and, and they are expressing this, and they've been expressing this for the past 10 or 15 years in different ways, many of them being ugly ways. 
But this does not change from the underlying fact that both sides realize that this is the right road, I think. And, um, that the direction is right. The direction is right. Mm-hmm. That this was, this was a, you know, okay, there's a mistake, there's a, there's a problem here, but it has to be solved. And I, I think people can, can look at this this way. You know, I think also there's a, there's a different imagination of, there's a different sense of time here. Mm-hmm. Even while people living their daily lives, they just, they want their children to have a, to be healthy and happy and fed and schooled that mm-hmm. day, right? But you don't see this, and I've, I've had this in conversation with Israelis also, this, um, there, there's a sense here that, that history is long. And, you know, for example, when we mm. were getting our tour of, oh, the old city the other day, and we had a Palestinian Christian tour guide. He was telling us about one of those many places, looking out over Jerusalem, which was Christian and then Muslim, and maybe it's Christian again, right? And he said, in one of these places, he said, and then the Crusaders were there, but they were only there for 200 years, so they couldn't do much. Uh, uh, <laughs> and yeah. I mean, I think that also, so again, when Americans look at this conflict, they feel like, it, it, you know, we have to resolve it this year or next year. Yeah. And you have it, but what you're describing is a sense that there's change, but that, that, that it may be the work of generations also, I mean. Oh, absolutely. Um, but I think... Because what we're looking at is not um, an agreement that's a kind of uh, a sales agreement or, a, you know, it's not a surface agreement. Right. What we're looking at is uh, something much more fundamental. We're looking at how human beings evolve. And we're not looking at how human beings evolve only in this part of the world. This is part of, a, of, of you know, the entire experience. I mean, everybody, including Americans, are part of this very slow process of human maturation. And by this, I mean the uh, uh, process through which or by which people come to see each other in the kind of right proportion they should be seeing each other, as opposed to the uh, skewed proportion that they you know, sometimes are uh, made to see each other. Especially when they're fearful. Especially when they're fearful. But also when they are, you know, brought up, engineered socially, educationally to think in specific ways. Mm-hmm. Thinking that this is, you know, this is the right thing to do for, 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 for ourselves. And so I think people are, on the whole, certainly here, but elsewhere are evolving, maturing. And this maturation process is necessary condition to come back to here, in particular, a necessary condition for resolving our particular conflict between Israelis and Palestinians because it's uh, long-standing. You know, Jews, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Mecca, I don't know what. I mean, it's not something that happened yesterday. And uh, so it can't just be uh, resolved. And, and, you know, you speak about legends and myths, and you have to somehow grow into them, grow out of them, know how to deal with them, live peaceably at them while at the same time accepting other myths that may conflict with them. Mm. And, um, but I think it's happening. It's a, it's, a, it's a process of maturation. And I think what we need to do while we, d- we have not yet signed on a, on a proper sort of legal document yeah. uh, making peace between the two sides, what, what people need to do is just to make life as bearable, tolerable as possible. 
and make sure that we are maturing in the right direction. Make sure, for instance, that we're educating ourselves in the right way. Make sure that, for instance, our children will not have to deal with the same uh, problems that we've dealt with. That they can, in fact, go ahead, move ahead, and, and solve whatever remaining problems there are. Mm -hmm. But I think the process is there. Hmm. We're going to change our tapes. I'll just ask you a few okay. more questions. This is <coughs> You tell me when you're ready. You know, um, it's interesting to me that in your writing, you, you've invoked, the, as a Muslim, you've invoked the image of Christ and the spirit of Christ as one, he, he, a healing, potentially healing image for Palestinians. Well, for more than one reason. I mean, one reason, of course, is that, uh, and this is not being flippant, but uh, we do look upon him as, as, uh, as, a, as an ancient Palestinian. Yes, As a yes. forefather. But the... The other reason is that, in fact, as a Palestinian also, we believe, I, I feel very much, that everywhere you look in this country, you sense his presence. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the more that you find out about his history, and the more that you uh, find out about the different locations and so on and so forth, you cannot but feel, you know, that he's very much there. And uh, finally, the message that he has, which is, I believe, extremely important, uh, very significant, very important for us as Muslims and Jews in this part of the world, um, of love, of compassion. Uh, and really, it's the only uh, pure message of peace that exists for us. Uh, I mean, you know, we can always say that Muhammad also, you know, had a message of peace or he was peaceful and that Jews can probably say this about. But I think, you know, when you look at uh, Christ, Christ was, you know, everything in I mean, it was, it was just peace. He was just a message of peace. Mm. And, and in that, I think there's a, a unique kind of importance, significance mm -hmm. uh, for us fighting in this, in this particular region. And uh, certainly I invoke him, I, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it, and it's, I think it's very important to read stories about him, hmm. whether, whether true or not. As a Palestinian. As a Palestinian, yes. but, but also in general. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't just, yes, as a Palestinian it's necessary. I mean, to read about him as a, the, knowing as a that Palestinian, he's Palestinian, yes. yes, yes. yes, yes. Um, I'm very interested in this um, also, the rich network of web of relationships you've always had with Israelis. Um, I, I would like for you to explain, and I want to talk about that. I, I do think you make an important point that I, I, I think I would like to understand better. Um, that Israel tends to uh, attack the moderates among the Palestinians and um, what do you, you know, play to the fanatics. Um, explain that dynamic that you see. Uh, well, 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 you in know, terms of the response that's elicited by, by Palestinians. 
Look, I mean, I realize this is uh, controversial what I'm saying, but I think that uh, it's also true that what we've had in Israel is the following. In, in general, I mean, and there are always, of course, exceptions and so on and so forth, but at the level of government, uh, the sense that the best way to keep Israel going, to keep it strong, to keep it uh, also growing, is to uh, maintain the sense that the other side, the other, is, uh, is, is dangerous and a threat. And therefore, uh, whenever the other came up with a face or would come up with a face that didn't express this, this would be regarded by the, uh, uh, the government, say, as uh, something not, not falling within its uh, uh, strategy and would therefore undermine it, bringing up again the, the negative uh, face or mm -hmm. image of the other. And uh, therefore, of course, uh, I mean, take for instance, I, I'll give you one example, the three, so-called three no's of Khartoum, just after 67, 1967, the Arab countries got together in, 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 in Sudan, made a meeting, had a meeting, and they produced, you know, they said, you know, do you want to recognize Israel? No. Do you want to have negotiations? No. Do you want to do this? No. And, and you know, this was the three no's of Khartoum. Okay. And then, you know, Israel made such a big thing of it. Look at the Arab world. No, no, no. Everything is no about the Arab world. And later, much later, recently, in about maybe 10 years ago, I can't remember, the Arab world came up with a peace plan. Uh, and the peace plan, you know, was, you know, we'll recognize Israel, negotiate with Israel. Maybe the Israelis, you know, not, need not necessarily agree with every bit and piece of it. But, but you know, there was a, a major peace initiative. Now, does it have the same kind of marketing or attention by the Israelis? No, it doesn't. It sort of gets swept aside. And Israel keeps saying, no, no, the Arabs are not serious. The Arabs are dangerous. They don't want us. Look at the uh, happenings now in the Arab world. There are revolutions sweeping right. the Arab world. And, and there are democratic revolutions, basically. Tunisia, Egypt in particular. And um, what do you find in Israel? Israel, there's fear. You know, no, 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 they're not. Uh, there's Qaeda, there's Hamas. There are, you know, all these guys that don't understand. And you understand. understand where those fears come from, but you're also saying that they can become, uh, they can become a way of seeing the world that then doesn't allow, that, that then right. masks another real, another That's possibility. Right. That's right. You, you sort of, uh, you eventually become, become a victim. I mean, you, you sort of, you start out uh, painting the other in a certain light. And, you know, at first it is perhaps a conscious act done out of uh, strategy because you are afraid and so you want to keep going and so that's what you have to do. And so you do that. But then eventually you become a victim of it and you begin believing it. And so whenever something else happens, you know, whenever, for instance, uh, the face of peace appears, you, you sort of... Uh, you just uh, you, you disbelieve it because you've you know educated yourself not to believe it. You know, we um, I was with uh, uh, um, someone I very much admire, a Jewish thinker, an Israeli thinker, um, and we were at dinner with him and his son. And he's a Holocaust survivor. His father was a Holocaust survivor, and he's got all that history in him. Um, and his son just got back from his service in the army, three years in a tank in Gaza. It's very interesting, the difference in their reactions to Egypt. Mm. The father, as you're describing, just 
fearful, saying too much has happened. It would be f- not 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 d- disallowing the possibility that perhaps you know it it might be that this would lead someday to something um, positive, but. But basically saying we've, we've experienced too much to just embrace this, right? Mm. The sun uh, uh, saying this is too amazing not to embrace. Mm. And he, he even said, even if this turns out not to, not to flourish, mm. this moment is amazing. And we, and he said, he was using, he was using English, and I think he was said, we, we the West and Israelis must hug them. Ah. I think you meant embrace, right? Yeah. And do what we can to turn this, to, to make all the positives of this be realized. Yeah. Well, this is a generation gap. Yeah, I'm wondering and about you uh, and you and your students and yeah. your, you, you have children. Well, in my case, I have children, but in my case, I'm more, uh, you know, I belong to the younger generation in my attitude. Uh, so tell me about that. Tell me about that, that, yeah, you and your students and your children, how is this being received here? No, I mean, students and the, and, and the children, my children, my children grown up, um, are all for, for what's happening. And, you know, like, like the father and the son even, you know, maybe, maybe things will not quite um, unfold the way we wish them to in, in, in ideal terms. But nonetheless, um, I think we all see eye to eye that this is a, this is a magical moment mm-hmm. in, in our history, not just the history of the Arab people, in the history of humanity, I think. It's, it's a moment, a magical moment in the sense of giving everyone hope that uh, human beings, normal people, are in fact capable of determining their destinies peacefully if they just stand up and say, this is what we want. Now, uh, of course, you know, we see Gaddafi and what he does to them. Right. Uh, but nonetheless, and, and you know, we may see things not unfolding in the right way afterwards, but it is this moment that has to be embraced. The fact that this is possible. It's incredible. It's, it's uh, you know, they've, they've, they've used the term Arab awakening um, I saw an article recently by Richard Haas saying... He's the head of the Council on Foreign Relations. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and quite a hawk, and traditionally. Quite a hawk. Yes. And, and uh, he says, the Arabs sometimes speak of uh, the Arab awakening as having occurred after, you know, with the Ottomans, with the fall down of the Ottoman Empire. But this may be a second Arab awakening. And I think... In a sense, uh, it is true that this is an Arab awakening, a second Arab awakening. I wouldn't call the first one an Arab awakening, okay. <laughs> but the Ottoman thing. But, but, but this one is a, a genuine Arab awakening because it is the people. It's not just rulers or governments. It is the ordinary people who've come out into the streets. And uh, on the whole, the, you know, you'll find that the Palestinians are you know, old or young, especially those that are not or do not have vested interests in, in the authority or in authority, mm-hmm. uh, are very much in favor of it. But of course, as the father that you mentioned uh, said, you know, we're not sure what's going to happen. Right. But it is a moment, and I think that it is a moment that tells us that things are possible, that things are possible, that we're not, we're not under the, the threat, under the... the, the we, we, do not li- we, we are not captives or victims eternally mm-hmm. to the powers of evil. It is kind of a demonstration of your thesis that there is a process of maturing. 
it is a, that it there's is an evolutionary human process. Definitely. And it is, you know, I was, I was giving some lectures recently. There's, there's, you see, something very strange happened. Uh, on the Arab intellectual front, so to speak, there's been debates ever since, you know, for, for the last hundred years uh, about what theories should the Arab world embrace in order to jumpstart it, jumpstart the Arab world into modernity. Should we, you know, go back, stick to the Islamic tradition? Should we become westernized? And people have sort of spent energy, time, money, effort, uh, research into, you know, building up theories. And recently, I think about four or five months ago, a very important thinker, Arab thinker died, passed away, called Jabri, um, from Morocco, I think. And in North Africa, some North African country. He's a major Arab thinker. And, you know, one of the people who've, who've held certain, you know, uh, theories and so on. And he died, he passed away. It was important. But then, you know, a few weeks or months later, someone nobody had ever heard of, uh, a guy who, who had a degree but couldn't find a job, who had to go and, and start uh, selling stuff as a street vendor, vendor. Uh, also in North Africa, in Tunisia, by the name of Abu Aziza. And he gets slapped in the face by a police officer and decides, you know, I'm going to go and burn myself. Yeah. And he burns himself. And people forget that this is what actually torched everything. Everything. And it's to do with what? It's to do with dignity, with freedom, with ideas that actually are very much part of what human being, beings are all about. And suddenly, you know, you have this entire major, uh, what, earthquake happening in the Arab world, and, and, and still happening. It, it hasn't stopped. And, you know, just, just think of the, of the difference. Uh, Jabri, a great man, thinker, the, uh, you know, he, he sort of comes from a long line of great thinkers, trying to put theories together, and nothing works for the Arab world. But then one man comes up and says, dignity, freedom, and he does it by torching himself, and the entire world erupts. So it's a powerful message. Yes, it is. Something that I think is unusual in your writing, maybe it's not as unusual as I am presuming is, um, I, I, I mentioned this a minute ago, you, you, your relationship with Judaism and with Israelis, I mean, your, your friendship with Amos Oz, um, you, you tell a story in your book about your sister reading the diary of Anne Frank mm -hmm. and being devastated by that. That's right. I, I, I sense that you, um, even with all that happened to your family, you, you were always very attentive to what you found admirable. In, I mean, starting yes. with the kibbutzim in the 60s. Yes. And, yes. Um, is that unusual, that, uh, that admiration that you have? I'm not sure whether it is unusual or, or not, uh, but, but it's certainly, I mean, what, what I mean is this. It, it's quite possible that many other Palestinian families have actually entertained or had the same kinds of uh, feelings about, about Jews and neighbors and so on, but maybe without expressing them. Mm -hmm. And maybe in my case, you know... You write books. I just say what I feel. Mm -hmm. um, and... and uh, uh, maybe that's the difference. I mean, you know, in, in, the, in my case, I mean, you know, look, uh, my father's, uh, one of my father's students 
when the British uh, were here, they established a law school, later to become part of the Hebrew University. So today's Hebrew University Law School was established prior to the Hebrew University by the British during the mandatory period. And my father, who at the time had studied law and so on, was actually appointed to give some lectures in this particular uh, school. This was in the mandatory period. My father was appointed, he was a very young judge, he was a judge, appointed as judge and, and was giving courses. And one of his students uh, later became a lawyer, an Israeli lawyer, and uh, I don't know, about 10, 15 years ago was moving house. Suddenly I get a note from him saying, you know, I'm, I'm copying to you or I'm sending you uh, the notes I took from your father's lectures mm. uh, when he was uh, doing this. Now, this is, you know, these are personal, immediate uh, uh, familial ties, relations that remind you of the fact that, you know, over and above people being this or that, they're also students, they're also friends, they're also acquaintances. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not, it's, you cannot separate between the two. And in our case, uh, we just were kept aware of it. And certainly after 67, my father introduced us, me, the daughter that you mentioned who was reading Anne Frank's diary, to uh, friends of his and children of friends of his that he had from prior to 48. Right. So, and we still have that kind of uh, relationship. And so there's that reality and then... Um you know, here's something that you wrote that's very present for me being in Jerusalem this week. It's remarkable how sacred sites that can arouse in us, and you were saying this as the call to prayer is, <laughs> can arouse in us a sense of the ineffable mystery of life, can also spawn a bare-knuckle brawl. You, you wrote, this is a mystery only a metaphysician or psychotherapist <laughs> can make any sense of. I won't try, but would you try? Because it's very, it's, you know, it's, it's so strange and dramatic. To, to experience this, the, the, the juxtaposition of these things. You know, there's, I, I'm not really sure, but there's a, a, a kind of, uh, you know, sometimes people use the image of the soul being like a mirror, right? Reflecting the universe, the divine God. And, you know, the mirror can sometimes turn this way and sometimes be turned mm. that way. And, you know, sometimes if it's turned the wrong way, not the right way. It sort of can create uh, problems if it's turned the right way. It can really reflect, you can really reflect the divinity of life in you. If it's sort of clouded, if it's not clear, if it's turned the other way. This is, by the way, a Sufi image mm -hmm. that I'm telling you. And right. maybe this is what lies in the call to uh, prayer and in, in, the, in the sense of the divine, that it can actually be a real call for uh, for uh, appreciation of, of the universe in all of its manifestations. And it can be, on the other hand, a uh, call for, uh, you know, thinking highly only of yourself, mm -hmm. of, of, uh, of overcoming other people. I just recently came back from a trip to Angkor in Cambodia. Okay. And uh, went visiting the temples there and, you know, one thing that struck me was the four faces in, in many of the gates that mm. were on those temples of Buddha and I was asking the guide, you know, what these stood for. And, you know, he said, care, compassion, charity, and equality are the four faces 
of Buddha in those temples. And, you know, as he said them, you know, I just felt, to me, this is God. Mm. And I'm not a Buddhist. (laughs) (laughs) You have, um, if we talk about healing, right? I mean, you have, you've said that political divisions scarring the Holy Land begin in the religious imagination, and it is here that they must be combated and overcome. The peace processes don't take that into account. No. And I'm not sure they can, actually. No. It's, it's a problem. Um, and that's why I was saying that, you know, there's only one, and there are two processes, or more than one layer of processes going on at the same time, or should be going on at the same time. And one of them is the process of negotiations one hears about, uh, where people go to hotel rooms or, or offices and sit down and negotiate bits and pieces of territory. But uh, the other layers are the layers that have to do with bringing the societies uh, helping the societies mature, if you like, mm-hmm. in this process of maturation we talked about. And this is maybe something one, one should say, which is that um, unlike, say, a negotiation that takes place over something totally different, like uh, a legal uh, negotiation over property or prices or what have you, here what you have is a process in which the entire society on one side has to be engaged with the entire society of the other side for the negotiation to, in fact, proceed. It can't be only engaged in by a few experts or, or lawyers mm-hmm. or you know, very clever politicians mm-hmm. behind closed doors. Everyone has to be somehow brought in. And they have to be brought in, buy in, bite into what is happening, be helped to uh, go along with the process. And this is where maybe addressing people's religious beliefs is important. Uh, because it's it's something that and it can't be done overnight. It is something mm-hmm. that takes time. So there's been a process. The, uh, I want to make sure I get this right. That the wall, the security wall, was coming through playing fields of Al Quds University. Is yeah. that right? And you had a successful nonviolent protest. So ha- I mean, that's an example of the kind of story that you don't hear. It, it does seem to be unusual, also. It was a wonderful story. Tell but, me but, about but, that. But it's it's something also that you have to take into account here. The fact that the United States interfered. Uh, and this is very, very telling. That's very important. Because um, at, the, uh, you know, at the end of the day, what happened was that the, uh, the time Secretary of State um, Condoleezza Rice mm-hmm. uh, called in the Defense uh, Ministry's director and told him, look, all right, we, uh, we agree with you, with, with Israel, that you have to build a wall for your security purposes, but we also have to make sure that the security fence does not impinge on the uh, you know, life or, or rights of your neighbors. And this is a case where this, there seems to be a problem, uh, where you're trying to build up a wall right in the middle of a playing field. So you, know, you have to get this fixed. And so he came back from his trip to the United States. And we were sitting in, uh, in, a, in one of the hotel rooms here. Uh, with his team of engineers and architects and defense experts, and I had my so-called team right. of, of people. And he came in and said, look, uh, let's go into the next room. And we went by ourselves to the next room and told me, look, look, drawing up the map, where do you want this wall built? And so I told him here, because here you can have a wall, but it does not actually run through my campus. 
And he came back to his people and said, okay, this is where it is. So we didn't actually spend right. too much negotiating. Okay. However, in order to get to that point, we spent more than 34 continuous days of sit-in protests on the field. And it was very important for us to do this peacefully. And it was very important for us, as we did this, to also address the other side, in this case, Israel, mm -hmm. by saying that, you know, okay, regardless of what we think about your idea of setting up a wall, it's your decision, you want to set it up, fine, but it should not be at our expense, you know, set it up so that we do not, we are not made to suffer. And then we sat there for, as I say, 34 days, we had our classes there, our meetings, our graduation ceremonies, we had uh, horse racing contests, chess, you name it, but it was constantly a constant presence and the army that was there at the beginning, right from the beginning, when it saw that we were just going there and, and doing things peacefully, just withdrew. Right. They're a bit worried at the beginning. And, uh, and we made sure, you know, we told the students <clears throat> that we don't want a martyr here, that, okay, we have a martyr, the next day you have a headline, martyr at Al-Quds University, but then the university is shut down for two months, we come back after two months, and the wall is built, so please keep your bravery and courage to one side and, yeah. and let's keep this going and, and let's try to push the wall back. We did. <clears throat> and maybe it is again your sense of time, but I don't, I, I think it could seem devastating to you that there's a wall, even if it's not in the middle of the playing fields. There's a wall around Al Quds University, the Arabic it's a slap University in, the face. in Jerusalem. I mean, you know, for someone like me, and I was telling people that as far as I'm concerned, it's a slap in the face in the sense that there I was preaching to people that we should build bridges with Israelis and people come to me and say look at what your Israelis are doing to us they're not building bridges they're building mm -hmm. building walls mm -hmm. and so one has to try and overcome that and I try to overcome that by again appealing to what I believe to be more important uh, issues which are you know regardless of what the Israelis are doing we should be better and regardless of how they perceive things we should perceive them in more open ways. Uh, of course, you know, it's, it doesn't always work uh, to try and, and talk people uh, to people like this. But as far as I'm concerned, at least, you know, I can only be really or feel really strong in my own positions, in the positions I take. And I take many positions that are very controversial if I feel at the same time that actually in taking them, I'm being true to what I believe are human principles. Hmm that uh, are, are, are constitute what I like to think of myself uh, as. So, and, and this is what I convey to my and this, students. And you, you, this, in 2003, you founded this People's Voice, yeah. a nonpartisan civilian movement, together with the former head of the Israeli Security Agency. <coughs> I mean, yeah. is that an example also of the kind of thing that's happening parallel or... Well, look, I mean, yeah, I mean, we've been doing this kind of thing. I've been um, engaged in all kinds of um, activities with Israeli uh, counterparts over the years uh, at, in different ways, at different levels. Before this particular initiative with, uh, with Ami Ayalon, I was, you know, three, four years before that, engaged in a, a very similar initiative with people in the uh, left uh, part of the Israeli establishment to people like Yossi Belen and Yossi Sarid and so on. We try to do something similar, just with the outbreak of this so-called second intifada. We right. try to do something similar, which unfortunately didn't work. And then 
This came along with Ami Ailon, and I felt that maybe working with him might be more successful than working with, with the left. people with, right. with the left. Uh -huh. And so I went wholeheartedly with this. And, and unfortunately, it didn't quite bear the kind of fruit that I wanted, that I, I, I hoped for. But, you know, in addition to this kind of uh, political activity that I've been engaged in, you know, we've established, for example, this thing called IPSO, which is the Israel-Palestine Scientific Organization. Mm. And uh, this is a, an organization which has, in fact, uh, been able to uh, fund and, and encourage co cooperation between uh, many Israeli and Palestinian scientists in joint projects. And this is not something that catches the headlines, it is very important, but it's there. And actually, if you dig uh, deep enough, you'll find that the many such uh, uh, programs that are going on among Israelis and Palestinians, I mean, that beneath the, beneath the surface, there's a lot of uh, activity of, of cooperation that's going on. And, you know, even if it's not significant in itself, mm -hmm. it's significant insofar as it reflects the potential that exists, the readiness, the attitude that I already said was there for uh, a real political process. So we're going there, we're getting there, but we're doing it slowly. And very often we make mistakes, unfortunately, as we go along, but you know, it's part of humanity mm. to make those mistakes. Mm. I think that's your last word. Anything else you'd want to add that I didn't ask you about? Or? I'm always worried when people ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think this was wonderful. I, I want to thank you so much. My yeah. pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Anything burning that. Have you always been doing I this? I lost kind track of, thing? of time. Hmm? Have you always done this kind of thing? I've done this for. Uh, we've had this program for seven years. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Well done. Thank you. Very impressive. So we'll put the, in the whole interview on the. Uh, online, yeah. and then we'll turn this into an hour of radio. Yeah, and it will be wonderful for people to hear you. So yeah. Thank you. So yeah, glad we could yeah, come it's here fantastic. too. Fantastic. Thank yeah. you. Great. It's Sari Nusayli. And Al Quds, Al Quds University, Al Quds University, Al Quds. We have occupied your office, but we left now. Yeah, well, I'm used to being occupied. <laughs> 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 I was telling people we should use another term for occupation because um, when you use the term occupied, you go to the public laboratory. You want to go and say occupied, and you stand outside thinking about occupied, it will be free in a minute. So you, you, know, you wait. In this case, it's been 40 years. <laughs> and you have so to go really bad. <laughs> Use another, another. <laughs> anyway, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I imagine you want the office now, right? <laughs> 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 I've never done it. Put it back to normal. Okay.